Beloved, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me, please, to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 11, as we are in our uh, 99th week uh, in uh, the book of Romans, as we continue in this uh, wonderful section in chapters 9 through 11 uh, on the question of Israel and the salvation of God. This morning, we come to Romans 11, verses 11 through 24. Uh, you may be thinking, oh my, are we going to be here all day? It's a large section, Pastor John. Uh, well, we are going to begin looking at this section this morning, and uh, we'll be in it at least for another week or two. Uh, but I'd ask you to please stand for the reading of God's Word, if you are able. Romans chapter, nine, chapter 11, rather, uh, verses 11 through 24. Romans 11, 11 through 24. So I ask, did they, that is Israel, stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I'm speaking to you Gentiles, and as much then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? Amen. Here ends the reading of God's Word. Would you pray with me? Our Father, as we come once again to uh, this wonderful and challenging uh, chapter of Scripture, would you ask that you'd grant us grace, you'd grant us wisdom, that you'd grant us understanding. And we pray, Lord, that our hearts would be filled afresh with wonder and praise as we consider, even from heaven's perspective, this great and glorious salvation, this work of salvation that you have been doing and are still doing and shall do in the lives of Jews and in the lives of Gentiles for your glory. 
Oh, Lord, be glorified through this time together, we pray in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Be seated. Salvation is not a birthright, nor is it an ethnic privilege. It cannot be earned by meritorious works or gained by good intentions. No, salvation from sin and judgment is a gift from God. It's all of grace, a gift from above. It does not originate with us, with our reaching up to Him on our arbitrary and sinful terms. Salvation originates with God and His reaching down to us on His sovereign and holy terms. Uh, This has been the Apostle Paul's resounding message from the very outset of Romans, particularly in chapters 9 through 11. Salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is of the Lord through faith in Jesus Christ and His person and work. But sadly, the majority of Paul's countrymen, the Jews, did not believe this. They chose to establish a righteousness on their own terms through works rather than receive Christ's saving righteousness on God's terms through faith. Let me say that again. They chose to establish a righteousness on their own terms through works rather than receive Christ's righteousness on God's terms through faith. He's been teaching this over and over again in chapters 9 and 10. You see, beloved, what the majority of Israel didn't understand and what so many fail to understand today, in other words, it's not just Israel, it's this. Through faith, we receive from Christ that which is impossible for us to obtain on our own. Through faith, we receive from Christ that which is impossible for us to obtain on our own. Once again, salvation is a gift. It's not something we earn. It's not something we are entitled to. So many of the things that people are saying in our own day, the ideologies that are being pushed on our culture and pushed through institutions uh, of education and, and through the media and, and through corporations, it's telling us that we are entitled, that we deserve this and we deserve that. But here we learn that salvation doesn't work like that. Salvation is a gift. We cannot earn it, nor are we entitled to receive it. But you see, Israel didn't get this. They rejected God's way of salvation. They rejected Jesus Christ, and instead clung to the spiritual privileges that were intended to direct their hearts to Him. It's something that people do in the church in our own day. Trusting in the spiritual privileges rather than in the one to whom those privileges point. What are some of our spiritual privileges? The Lord's table, baptism, church membership, the fellowship of the body of Christ, and on and on and on we can go. We enjoy all of these wonderful spiritual privileges. Some would put their confidence in those things. 
rather than in the one to whom they ultimately point. You see, this is Paul's point in the opening verses of chapter 9 when he describes Israel's privileges. They are Israelites, he writes, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. You see, the pagan nations didn't have these things. They only had their idols and their, their lies and deceit. But Israel had all of these things because the God of Abraham had revealed these things and given these things to them. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. You see, the nation of Israel enjoyed all of these spiritual benefits and privileges. Even the promised Messiah came from the people of Israel. All of this was given to them to point them to the one who could save them. But they rejected him. Unbelief was widespread in Old Testament Israel, and it continued into Paul's own day. Did this mean then that God's word had failed? Some may have arrived at that conclusion. But Paul says, no way. He states emphatically in chapter 9 and verse 6, it is not as though the word of God has failed. And by the way, that is true in whatever life's challenges come your way. Whatever challenges come your way as a result of the sin-torn world in which we live, God's word never fails. God's word and his promises are always true. And so it's not as though God's word has failed in relation to Israel. The Apostle Paul then writes those unforgettable words in chapter 9 and verse 6, words that are foundational for helping us to better understand, uh, to better apprehend the mysterious work of salvation. He writes this, quote, For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Oh, thanks for clearing that up, Apostle Paul. What does that mean? What a minute, one might say. How can a descendant of Israel not belong to Israel? But Paul answers by stating that in accordance with God's sovereign purpose, which he, which he lays out in Romans chapter 9, it's the children of promise who constitute the true Israel of God, not the physical descendants of Israel, though there will be physical descendants who embrace Christ. It is not only the physical descendants of Israel and the physical offspring of Abraham who constitute the true Israel of God. No, the children of promise are, now you ready? They are elect Jews and Gentiles to whom God has shown sovereign mercy. The children of promise, the true Israel of God, are elect Jews and Gentiles to whom God has shown sovereign mercy. The children of promise are those who, by grace through faith, are united to Jesus Christ. And so, with these things in mind, Paul is trying to help the church in Rome, members who are uh, from a Jewish background, members are from a Gentile background. Gentiles were probably in the majority in the church, helping them to understand 
from heaven's perspective, what is going on regarding God's promises to Israel, God's promises and how they apply to uh, the New Testament church. And he's bringing these things forward for them to understand. As Paul clarifies elsewhere in Galatians 3.29, quote, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Who are Abraham's offspring? Those who are united to Christ by grace through faith, both Jew and Gentile, heirs together, not according to works, not according to the law, but according to what? According to promise. According to promise. And so with this important background and context in mind, let's turn our attention for a few minutes to our passage for this morning a passage that provides further insight into God's work of salvation to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. You know, uh, there are certain passages uh, of Scripture where it seems that there's just an abundance of clear application that comes from a text. You look at the next chapter in Romans 12, you know, really Romans 12 through 16, which is uh, in large part um, application. Uh, application of all of the glorious foundational truth that's set forth in Romans 1 through 11. This is who we are in Christ. Now verses 12 through, uh, chapters 12 through 16 in Romans, this is how we live in Christ. And so there are certain texts you come to where we are meant to gaze upon the truth and the glory and the mystery of the gospel. Uh, like you walk up to a, a beautiful painting uh, in an art gallery, and you are amazed at the beauty of this painting, and you cannot take your eyes off of it, and it, it moves you. Uh, this is uh, what we do, of course, anytime we open up the Scripture, but in particular when we see passages where there's so much mystery wrapped up uh, in uh, a text, and we do that hopefully this morning. It's been my prayer that we'd be filled with wonder and, and love and praise as we consider God's work of redemption to the Jew first. And also to the Gentile, remember the theme verse of Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. I am not ashamed of the gospel, Paul said, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. For it is the righteousness of God. This gospel, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, for the righteous shall live by faith. So there are three uh, points uh, this morning. If you are taking notes, we will uh, unpack the first two. We will touch upon the third one and deal more with it next week, God willing. Here's point number one. Israel's stumble opens the door of salvation to the Gentiles. Israel's stumble opens the door of salvation to the Gentiles. Number two Gentile inclusion fosters jealousy in the Jews. Gentile inclusion fosters jealousy in the Jews. And then number three, a strong admonition to the Gentiles. A strong admonition to the Gentiles. You read this text and you almost feel like there's a ping pong match going on. This is going to happen so that this happens so that this happens. And then in the end, we're all going to glorify God. And we're thinking about this in terms of the, the Jews and the Gentiles and Christ's great salvation. Look with me now at verse 11 again. So Paul writes, 
So I ask, did they, Israel, stumble in order that they might fall? By no means, he writes. It's a rhetorical question. It's similar, isn't it, to the one that he asked at the beginning of this chapter. Look at verse 1. This, this question, of course, sets the tone and theme for the entire chapter. Has God rejected his people? Paul answers, by no means. You see, the disobedience and, and idolatry and unbelief of the majority of Israel throughout their history to the present day, as, as Paul writes, will not result in their complete rejection. God had not completely rejected his people. Again, Paul points to his own conversion as proof that God has not entirely cast off his people Israel. He himself was a Jew and a son of Abraham, a descendant of Abraham. Moreover, Paul referred, you remember, to the story of Elijah in the wilderness. Paul quoted God's words that he brought to Elijah, that he gave to Elijah when he was discouraged in the wilderness, that he has, quote, kept for himself 7,000 who would not bow the knee to Baal, who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at this present time, Paul writes in verse 5, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Now, I'm going to give you a little teaser this morning. I'm going to unpack this probably in a sermon on its own. In the fact, I believe it's a fact, that Romans 11 isn't so much about the future of the Jews as about Paul's ministry to the Jews in the first century. Over and over again, we see the words present. We see the words now used over and over again. The focus is on what God is doing in the context of his people Israel at the time of Paul. Of course, there are future implications for this. But so many of the ideas that I believe have been placed on the text about this uh, being some massive future uh, ingathering I believe is uh, not a proper interpretation of this text. We will unpack that more later. Hopefully, we will see that. But notice in verse 5, there is a remnant chosen by grace at this present time, Paul writes. At this present time. In other words, just as God kept for himself a remnant of faithful believers in Elijah's time, so too he will keep for himself a remnant of faithful Christians of Jewish descent in Paul's time and will do so for all time. Dear ones, I believe that what's being taught in Romans 11 is a remnant theology regarding the Jews. God had a remnant in the Old Testament. He had a remnant in first century Rome and in the first century world. And he will have a remnant for all time. Just as God kept a remnant for himself of faithful believers in Elijah's time, so he will keep for himself a remnant of faithful Christians of Jewish descent in Paul's time and will do so for all time. Therefore, while it is true that corporately as a nation, Israel stumbled over a stumbling stone, that is Jesus Christ, they would not completely fall. They would not all be lost. A remnant chosen by grace would be saved out of Israel. And from heaven's perspective, from heaven's perspective, which is a perspective we ought to consider, Israel's stumble in unbelief 
was the occasion to bring salvation to the Gentiles. Israel's stumble and unbelief was the occasion to bring salvation to the Gentiles. Remember Romans 8.28? God works what? All things together, what? For good. To those who love God and are called according to His purpose. It doesn't say God works together some things or most things. He works together all things in His wisdom. He's working all things together for good. God brings good even out of bad things. Again, look in verse 11. Paul writes, Though Israel's trespass, rather, through Israel's trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Nowhere do we see this more plainly than in the account of Paul and Barnabas in Antioch and Pisidia. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13 and beginning in verse 44. Acts 13, beginning in verse 44 through verse 49. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Just prior to this, uh, they had, uh, the Sabbath prior, they had preached and people wanted them to come back and preach again. And so they're all gathered. And verse 45 says, but when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly saying, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Okay, so you hear that? Paul is saying it was necessary that the word would first come to you. This was the modus operandi of the apostles. They went to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. It was necessary that they came and preached the gospel uh, to the Jews. But then it says, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I've made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And in verse 48 says, And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. This kind of occurrence happens again in Acts 18 while Paul, Silas, and Timothy were in Corinth. The Jews opposed and reviled them. And verse 6 of chapter 18 states that Paul, quote, shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Dear ones, the point here is that God's word had not failed and his plans had not been ruined by Israel's rebellion and unbelief. It was being fulfilled in light of it. Salvation had come to the Gentiles through the stumbling of the Jews, through their rejection of the gospel. And mysteriously, then, God would use this Gentile inclusion into the people of God to make Israel jealous, bringing some of them back into the fold, those who would be part of that remnant we spoke of earlier. Paul summarizes these things in verse 12. Look with me in Romans 11 and verse 12. Now, if Israel's trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their, their full inclusion mean? 
Again, Paul is speaking here of Israel's behavior at, at, at his time, at, at the time of Paul. And, and he talks about their full inclusion, which would mean that there is a, a full inclusion of the remnant of the Jews that will have been taking place in his time and throughout all time. The Lord is adding to this number, and one day that number will be full. Paul is explaining that if Israel's unbelief and stumbling in the past and in his own day mean blessing and spiritual riches for the Gentiles, how much more will the full inclusion of the remnant of the Jews chosen by grace mean? That is, when the full number of Jews predestined unto eternal life are saved and Christ returns in glory, God's sovereign plan of redemption will be complete and full. This sovereign plan of salvation is glorious and it's mysterious. And it's why Paul concludes this chapter with such a majestic doxology in verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable are His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been His counselor or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid for from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. You see, the teaching that has arisen in the church, particularly in the 20th century, this idea that all of those with Jewish blood, no matter what they believe, will one day be ushered into heaven, goes totally against the entire flow of Scripture, the entire truth of Scripture, the entire truth of Romans. You see, salvation for the Jew is the same as salvation for the Gentile. It's by grace. It's through the predestinating hand of our sovereign God. And it is through union with Christ by grace through faith. Amen? For all of us. Paul is reinforcing this all throughout Romans 9 through 11. Well, this leads to our second heading, Gentile inclusion, fostering jealousy in the Jews. In our day, we hear a lot about FOMO. What is FOMO? Fear of missing out. Fear of missing out. It's a term that was introduced in 2004 uh, mostly in relation to social media use. Uh, when people are on social media, they, they often feel like uh, they're going to miss out if they're not always on it. I might miss something. I might miss an important post. I might miss an important gathering. I might miss uh, something from a friend who says, hey, let's go out later or whatever. And so there's this kind of obsession to stay connected on social media so that they don't Miss out. FOMO. Fear of missing out. Now, while Instagram and Facebook and TikTok were not around in the first century, thank God, Paul described his ministry to the Gentiles as seeking to make his fellow Jews jealous. And so when they discover all that they are missing out on concerning the salvation blessings of God's kingdom, they will come to Christ. It's strange to think of God using jealousy to draw His people to Himself. 
Of course, all according to the working of his Holy Spirit. But that's exactly what he does. Paul, speaking directly to Gentiles in verse 13, refers to himself as an apostle to the Gentiles. And as an apostle to the Gentiles, he wants to magnify his ministry in order to make his fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. It might appear that Paul's primary aim in bringing the gospel to the Gentiles is to make Israel jealous and draw them back into the fold. But that's, that's not true at all. Paul loved his calling and role as a, a herald of the good news to the Gentiles. They are his joy and crown. However, as O. Palmer Robertson explains, quote, as a result of his current ministry, Paul hopes to see Jews move to jealousy when they see Gentile believers sharing in the blessing of the messianic kingdom, end quote. Dear ones, we need to remember that it's not only the Apostle Paul that can participate in this kind of outreach to Jewish friends and neighbors, family members. We can as well. We must. We can invite friends with a Jewish background into our lives. We share the gospel with them. We can let them see and even experience the blessings of Christian fellowship, all of which might even incite them to a spirit-wrought envy of enjoying the blessings of communion with God and His people, eventually leading them to put their faith and trust in the promised Messiah. I know some of you have done this, have been this kind of witness. Some of you are doing it now. Keep doing it. Be faithful witnesses, loving, humble witnesses for those of Israel that they would believe the gospel, which is the power of God and salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile, and that God would use us as faithful witnesses in their lives. Well, we've been hearing a lot about Israel in the news these days. Perhaps when we hear about Israel, when we're praying for all these terrible things happening in the Middle East, we can pray for the salvation of Jews in Israel, that they would hear the gospel, that there would be faithful witnesses and missionaries and pastors in Israel sharing this good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and that there would be by His grace a response. Well, our final point highlights an admonition to the Gentiles. For the sake of time, as I mentioned earlier, we're not going to drill down a whole lot uh, into this point. This week, we'll do so next week. For now, I simply want us to notice Paul's sober warning to the Gentiles. It appears that some of the Gentile believers in the church at Rome were boasting in their new status as the true Israel of God, as being a part of the Israel of God, showing a kind of, of arrogance, a kind of condescension towards their fellow believers as they themselves enjoy the riches of God's inheritance in Christ. Paul rebukes them. He reminds them that they were once wild branches. They were once idol worshipers and pagans before God, by sovereign grace, grafted them into the natural tree, the people of God. They should not foster arrogance, but deep humility and gratitude. 
Look with me at verses 17 through 22. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, the nourishing root being uh, the promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God's covenant promises, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. Dear ones, this section is not teaching us about people being saved and then not saved, about being born again and then unborn again. That's not what this is teaching at all. This is looking at things from the perspective, the human perspective of branches, of, of those who are uh, branches on the natural olive tree, the Jews, being broken off because of unbelief and branches that were a part of wild trees being broken off that and grafted into the natural olive tree, the roots being the promises and the grace and the covenants of God. He's telling the Gentiles, he's exhorting the Gentiles, he's admonishing the Gentiles not to be arrogant about their place in the people of God because it's God's promises and his covenant promises that he first made to Israel that supports the entire tree. We learn that branches that were once broken off can be grafted back in. And all this is saying is from our human perspective, we understand that people come into the church, people wander away from the church, and sometimes people come back to the church. The same was true for Jews who were at the time of Paul rejecting the gospel and could come back in. And what he says is, don't be arrogant in your position. You know, beloved, as I contemplated this point and thought about its application to our lives, not only are most of us in this room Gentiles who have been grafted in, but also if we think about our Reformed faith, about the truth that, that, that was proclaimed from Romans 9 over the course of several months and being reminded that we are saved not by works but by God's sovereign grace. We are objects of His mercy. Our theology reinforces this, right? Our confession reinforces this. And therefore, we ought to be the most humble people in the entire world. Humility should drip from the fellowship uh, and uh, the lives of uh, our church because we are saved by grace, not by works. We are not entitled to these things. We've been given these things as gifts. And so we've been united to Christ by grace and through his faith, which is the gift of God, lest any man should boast. There is no room for boasting in the church except for boasting in the cross of Christ. Amen? That is our boast. 
Christ is our boast. And so at the time, it, it, so it would seem Gentile Christians within the church at Rome were boasting and being arrogant in their place and perhaps even speaking condescendingly about uh, the Jews. Well, Paul gave them a strong word here because that kind of pride and that kind of arrogance is not the fruit of the Spirit. And we must all beware as those who know God, who trust God, who are united to Christ, we believe that and we are assured in our hearts of that and the preaching of the word reminds us of this and assures us and, and, and the Lord's table and our baptism uh, assures us by grace through faith that we are the Lord's. But if our attitudes and our behavior and our patterns of our life are out of accord with all of those things, particularly as it concerns great pride and arrogance, we must ask and we must fear as it concerns our own relationship with God. Do we truly know him? And so the gospel rightly understood, all of these things rightly understood, they cultivate deep-seated humility, a charitable spirit and not a hypercritical one. And don't we need this reminder in our day and age, beloved, where there's so much hateful, polarized conversation happening through the media everywhere you turn. We are to be a people of humility who speak the truth, but speak the truth in love. Well, as we prepare our hearts to come to the Lord's table, would you pray with me? Our Father, we thank you uh, for the truths set forth in this text. Difficult to times to understand and surely mysterious as we try to contemplate these matters with our finite minds. But, O oh Lord, in the end we know that you are working all things together for good. You are drawing to yourself men and women and boys and girls from Jewish and Gentile descent and grafting them all into this tree, some natural branches, some unnatural, but grafting them into the same tree. Oh, Lord, we praise you for that. And we praise you that we are one in Christ. Give us a heart that trusts Christ alone for our salvation and give us a heart that seeks to reach out to Jewish friends and neighbors and family members, sharing with them the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And also give us hearts of humility as we consider the grace that's been lavished upon us. And we pray these things.